Good morning. Um, as many of you know, I've just recently returned from Turkey um, I, one week ago. And actually, the first part of why I was there was I was presenting a paper at a conference. And part of that included talking about some ancient graffiti that has been discovered in the ancient marketplace in Smyrna, which is underneath the modern city of Izmir. Um, so it was really fun to talk about this. Um, graffiti apparently is something that's universal, doesn't change. We can find it everywhere. And the kind of graffiti that's found that's been uh, excavated includes some of the stuff that you can find on bathroom stall walls, but other things, including some really amazing graffiti that was probably written by Christians. And so here we have indications of unnamed individuals somewhere in the second century writing things that would help other people know that there were Christians in ancient Smyrna. So what does ancient graffiti have to do with anything this morning at Church of the Redeemer? Um, well, part of it is that we often acknowledge that history is often written by the big players, the kings, sometimes the queens, uh, the rulers, the authorities, but a lot of times this means that there are accounts of individuals who are overlooked, unknown, and seemingly insignificant. But these individuals actually have a lot to tell us. Sometimes historians talk about this in terms of social history. So this graffiti that I was looking at reminded me that a lot of the accounts we have in the second century focus on the big players. But there's another story to be told by individuals who are often overlooked. Somewhere there was a believer following Jesus Christ in the second century who was scratching things into the plaster to let other people know that there were believers. So I want to link this to one of our passages this morning because this is gonna lead us to an individual who is often frequently overlooked, is largely unknown, and is one of the seemingly insignificant individuals who are mentioned in Genesis. Of course, when we think of Genesis, we think about the big players. We think about Noah, we think about Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, maybe Joseph. But who thinks about Hagar? And when somebody does, it's almost always presented to us in a kind of a negative way. There's something about her that doesn't seem quite right. Actually, I mean, I could joke and say, who names their daughter Hagar, at least in the Christian West? They do in other parts of the world. Part of this has to do with an understanding of what Paul is doing with Hagar in uh, Galatians 4, and we'll get back to that a little bit later. But Hagar is sometimes linked to the claim that somehow Abraham and Sarah didn't really have a, enough faith to trust God. So she's kind of looked as an example of failure, that somehow they, they did this because they weren't really trusting God. More often than not, however, Hagar is just passed over. <laughs> she's just, I mean, how many times do you hear a sermon on Hagar, right? Um, but I want to focus on her this morning, because I think in the passage that Stan just read from Genesis 21, and even echoes in the psalm that we just read, um, we are going to find out that Hagar makes a really important contribution to our understanding of who God is. This part of her story has to be understood in the context of Genesis 16, which is the beginning of her story. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to be talking about Genesis 16 quite a bit so you can follow along, but I will read verses so you don't need to worry about that. But we're going to look at Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 and see what they teach us not only about Hagar, but about God himself. 
Now, both of these are part of a larger narrative in Genesis that concerns Abraham. And that narrative goes from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25. Don't worry, we are not going to go through all of that. I've done that sometimes, as you know, but rest assured, we won't go through all of those chapters today. But I do want to give us some summaries of kind of what's going on in Abraham's life and Sarah. <clears throat> Slow down, look at uh, Genesis 16, fast forward a little bit, and then land in Genesis 21. And in the end, I think what we're going to see is that this seemingly insignificant or even negative figure is actually very important in the development of God's promises. And she is remarkable, even admirable, in her encounter with God and her faith in him. So let's go ahead and jump in. So if we start our survey of Genesis 10, uh, 12 through 15, <clears throat> there are two main characters that emerge pretty quickly. We're going to have Abraham, we're going to have Sarah. I'm going to use the names that they get later on in the text and not use the names that they have earlier on. Now they are both complex. They demonstrate faith and fear, obedience and failure. They do good things and they do bad things. In other words, they are a lot like us. So as we quickly survey the account of Abraham, it actually begins at the very end of Genesis 11, which is after the account of the Tower of Babel. If you remember when we've talked about this previously, this is the account of fallen, rebellious humanity that is really attempting to have God on their own terms for their own glory. It is an absolute failure. The focus then shifts very abruptly to one man. This is Abraham, or as he's called there, Abram. God calls Abraham to leave his father's house and promises Abraham that he will take him to a land not specified, make him a great nation, bless him, make his name great, and make him a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. What promises? This is remarkable, and Abraham's faith at this point is also remarkable. He gets up and goes. He doesn't even know where he's going. But these promises are also a little bit vague. How is God going to do all of this? The promise of being a great nation certainly suggests descendants. But we are told multiple times in the text that Sarah is not able to conceive, and if we didn't get that, then we're told that she has no children. This fact about her is emphasized in the text. And we're also told that Abraham is 75 years old at this point. So the prospects of a biological descendant from Abraham and Sarah is not looking very good. As we move through Abraham's account, God repeats these promises often focusing on the promise of offspring, and then he adds more details. And this is especially true when these promises appear to be threatened. So sometime after Abraham and his family enter the land of Canaan, we're told that there's a famine in the land. That's never good. So Abraham takes his family to Egypt. And here is where we see Abraham acting not out of faith, but out of fear. He tells Sarah to pretend that she is his sister so the Pharaoh will spare his own life. He's willing to let Pharaoh take Sarah as a wife in order to spare himself. It's not a high point in his life. But this is where Abraham acquired flocks, herds, male and female slaves. And it is likely that Abraham acquired Hagar at this point and gave her to Sarah. And we're going to come back to this. 
After Pharaoh sends Abraham and his family and his herds and his slaves back to the land of Canaan, another threat emerges. And this is basically Lot looking at the land and saying, I want to have that portion of the land. Abraham says, fine. But this is a real challenge to the threat that all of the land would be given to Abraham. But once again, the Lord assures him that his offspring will be numerous. In fact, they'll be so numerous they cannot be counted. And this is Genesis 13. But again, the details about the mechanics of how this is going to be fulfilled are not given to us. So this brings us to Genesis 15, where Abraham receives a vision assuring him of God's great reward for him. But Abraham reminds, him, reminds the Lord that there's just one small problem. He is childless. So Abraham assumes that his servant, his slave, Eleazar, will be his heir. In response, the Lord brings another vision to Abraham and adds a significant detail to the promise, namely that the offspring will come from Abraham's own body. We should note that nothing is said about Sarah's body at this point in the narrative. And then in another vision, the Lord confirms his promise with offspring of the land with a unilateral covenant that he makes with Abraham. So this brings us to Genesis 16, which as I said, is the necessary background for Genesis 21. And in fact, we're gonna spend a little bit more time in Genesis 16 because Genesis 21 is just kind of the complement to that. And again, as I've mentioned several times, as we enter Genesis 16, God has not made it really clear how he is going to fulfill his promise. All we know is that the, at this point is that the offspring will come from Abraham's own body. Sarah's actions in Genesis 16 indicate that she has heard uh, this new revelation about Abraham's body. So in Genesis 16:1, we are first introduced to Hagar, but notice how she's introduced. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne him any children, um, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. First, we are told that she is an Egyptian, and second, that she's a slave. Almost incidentally, we get her name. The fact that she's Egyptian is not a minor detail. As noted, this probably reflects back to when she was acquired when Abraham and his family were in Egypt. We don't know how she became enslaved. It's very plausible that her parents were poor and sold her into slavery. We just don't know those details. And we don't know her age, but she's probably fairly young. Here, however, she is going to foreshadow the very significant role that Egypt is going to have in the life of God's people in Exodus. And as we're going to find in Exodus, God's people are now slaves in Egypt. So we're going to find ways in which Hagar prepares us for the great work that God is going to do for his people later on in Egypt. And of course, we are told that she is a slave. And as we're going to see, this means she has little to no agency. Then finally, we're given her name, Hagar. There's no real consensus as what this name means, but the fact that she's given a name underscores her humanity. And as we go through these passages and the others, it is Genesis 16 and Genesis 21, it is very significant that only the narrator and God call Hagar by her name. Everyone else refers to her as a slave. So in verse 2 in chapter 16, we read, Sarai said to Abraham, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build up a family. Again, as I just said, notice that Hagar is not named. She is my slave. 
Assumed here is the role of the wife to produce an heir for her husband. And not to do so brought about a significant amount of dishonor and could actually be the grounds for, uh, for divorce. So Sarah's barrenness was a great source of shame for her. And it was probably be even exacerbated by the fact that Abraham had received this promise that he would have offspring as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the dust. In the ancient world, barrenness was usually viewed to be an issue with the woman, not with the man. Um, so all of these things are playing in Sarah's own vulnerable position. And I want to be sensitive here. Um, this is not the place where I can develop this more, but the question of barrenness is still a sensitive issue for people and can still be a source of shame. Um, if anybody would like to talk about that afterward, I have more thoughts on that, but I do want to be sensitive as we go through this passage. So the idea of having a female slave, who is the slave of a, a, a more prominent female, produce an offspring that would be uh, rendered as hers, particularly a son, is uh, attested in ancient accounts during this time. And the emphasis on a son is really important because he's going to be the one who is going to carry on the family name, but ultimately provide for the family. So that's one of the, you know, an indication of the times in which these, these texts are, being, are taking place. So Sarah assumes that a, a son born to Hagar will help to build up Sarah's own family. And we see a similar kind of arrangement later on with Rachel, who gives her servant, Bilhah, to uh, Jacob. Very similar kind of situation. But again, Sarah knows at this point that the promised descendant is going to come from Abraham's body. So it's really not a lack of faith on her part to do what she does. It's not a wise decision. And it may be kind of an ancient variant of the Lord helps those who help themselves. But it's not without, I mean, there's, we can understand what's motivating her to do this. But notice in ver if you were to look at verse 3 in chapter 16, we read that Hera Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abraham. She is an object. She has no agency. Her value is solely in her ability to produce offspring. And as Sarah's, Sarah's slave, this would have been one of the functions of her as a female uh, slave. Now, she would have been considered, the text says that she's given to Abraham as a wife, and she would have been considered a second wife with no dowry. Um, sometimes older texts will call this a concubine. But this, would have a, this individual would have a better status than a slave, but certainly not the status of the first wife. And again, if you were to look at this passage, you would note that only the narrator calls her by her name. So in Genesis 16, verse 4, we read that Hagar conceives... And when that happens, her view of Sarah changes. Um, sometimes this is translated that she views Sarah with contempt, but it's probably better to understand that she views Sarah as having a different status. It's very interesting that her own status has risen considerably by the conception of this child. And so she is beginning to kind of, there's an irony that's taking place that the one who was a slave with no status now is actually able to do the thing that the more prominent woman was not able to do. So this, of course, upsets Sarah. And she blames Abraham for the situation, even though she's the one who initiated it. Notice what she says in, uh, to Abraham. Here, uh, sorry, she, she uh, asks Abraham to deal with the issue. And notice what Abraham says to Sarah in uh, chapter 16, verse 6. Here, your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want 
with her. She has obviously been demoted from status of second wife back to status of slave. And she is once again an object with no agency. We are told that Sarah treats her so harshly that she runs away. She's disposable, she's used, she's subservient, and the only thing that we know about her in this text is that she is an Egyptian slave. And here she is in Genesis 16, pregnant, alone, and in a hostile wilderness. This is likely the very arid part of the Sinai Peninsula. And here is where the story gets really interesting. The angel of the Lord, who really is acting on behalf of the Lord himself, finds her in the wilderness on the way to Shur. In other words, S-H-U-R. In other words, on the way back to Egypt. Um, she is, has traveled quite some distance all by herself in a hostile environment. But the text says that she is found by a spring of water, already setting us up for God's provision. And it's significant that the angel of the Lord addresses her first by her name, Hagar, then slave of Sarah. This affirms her worth and dignity and actually recognizes the reality of her current situation. After she tells the angel of the Lord that she's running away from her mistress, Sarah, the angel of the Lord surprisingly commands her to go back and submit to Sarah. This is hard to understand, but Hagar's child needs to be born in Abraham's family and to receive the protection and the provision that only Abraham can give to him. This command actually ensures the survival of both her and her son. But as we're going to see later on in Genesis 21, she actually does get her freedom. Then the angel of the Lord blesses Hagar with the promise that her own offspring will multiply and be too great to be numbered. This clearly echoes the promise that was given to Abraham. So the same promise that's given to the great patriarch Abraham is given to an Egyptian slave, Hagar. The angel then tells her that she will have a son and that she is to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. We have our own uh, attestation of this sitting in the back. The angel tells her that this name is because God has heard her cry of affliction. For the rest of her life, her son's name will remind her that God heard her affliction. And once again, Hagar prefigures the Exodus narrative where we are told in Exodus 2 that God hears the Israelites groaning and in Exodus 3, that the Lord heard the cry of the affliction of his people in their bondage in Egypt. Now, in Genesis uh, 16, verse 13, we have a remarkable verse, and we read, So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, which means the God who sees me. This is the only place in all of scripture where a human being gives a name to God. And the, the account is underscored by the fact that the place where this takes place is called Bir Laharoi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. We've got to stop and understand how significant this is. 
A nameless, insignificant slave, according to human standards, is given the ability to name her son, and she names God. Before we continue on and look at the passage, it's actually in Genesis 21. Let me just skip over the intervening chapters fairly quickly. In Genesis 18, God receives three visitors, whom we're told are three angels, and they tell him that next year this time, Sarah will have a child. She, of course, is listening at the entrance of the tent, and what does she do? She laughs. I think we all would too. She was barren during all of her uh, childbearing years, and now she's well past those years. So this is pretty hard to understand. But now this brings us to the very beginning of the passage that was read this morning. Um, just prior to the verses that were actually read, we're told that God fulfills his promise to Sarah, and she does indeed conceive and bear a son. They name this child Isaac, which means he laughs. And I think this reflects both the fact that Sarah and Abraham can hardly believe what God has done for them. Um, as I said, we've many times in the text, it's been emphasized that this is impossible. Sarah's barrenness, Abraham's age, he's over 100 years old at this point. So obviously, Isaac's birth represents a truly supernatural event of divine intervention. And now as a quick aside, I said I'd come back and say something about what Paul is doing in Galatians 4. That's a complicated passage, and we certainly can't get into it. But here he, in that passage in Galatians 4, he likens Hagar and Sarah to two covenants. The essence of his argument is not to take down Hagar or Sarah or to promote Sarah and Isaac in any way, but is to show that Ishmael represents the human effort to fulfill God's promise. And Isaac represents the supernatural work of the Spirit, which is only possible to fulfill God's promise. So really, even in Paul's use of Hagar and Sarah, there's something much more profound that's going on. So back to Genesis 21. We're told that Abraham has a feast to celebrate the weaning of his son Isaac. And that somehow Sarah sees Ishmael and perceives him to be mocking her son Isaac. The text is not clear here, so we don't know if Ishmael was actually doing something or if Sarah just perceived that he was doing something. Um, but in, in regardless, she perceives Ishmael now to be a threat. Very interestingly, if you look at verse 10, the narrator refers to Hagar as the Egyptian, not as a slave. So it is very likely that at this point she has either obtained her freedom or will be soon. But notice in verse 10 that Sarah simply refers to her as this slave, not even my slave, this slave. No name, no other identity. Clearly, just as she perceived Hagar to be a threat earlier, now she perceives Hagar's son, Ishmael, to be a threat, specifically to the promised inheritance. So we begin to see here more clearly the consequences of having an offspring from Abraham through Hera. Hagar, excuse me, I'm gonna combine those names. Hera, it's a new name, it's a combination. Um, of course, at the time when this was taking place, it seemed like a reasonable solution, just have the female slave bear the child. But we can see how much of a rift it causes in Abraham's family, beginning when the time that Hagar ran away, and then now to this time where she's being, exp uh, the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael. 
So what this is emphasizing is that clearly Hagar is not the means to fulfilling the promises that were given to Abraham. Um, so again, at one level, this represents a mistake of human efforts to try to fulfill God's promises. But even in the midst of this mistake, we see how God tenderly cares for Hagar and Ishmael. There are so many parallels here back to Genesis 16. And as I mentioned just a minute ago, in Genesis 16, Sarah is upset by Hagar's attitude to her. But here in Genesis 21, she's threatened by Hagar's son. In both cases, she demands that Abraham take care of the problem. And notice again that she is linked with very harsh treatment of Hagar. She treats her harshly in chapter 16, and here in 21, she demands that Abraham drive her out. Very harsh language. Um, again, a clear understanding of Hagar and Ishmael as objects only. Now, we're told in this text that this really distresses Abraham. But notice that he will also take care of Ishmael. And again, as I've uh, pointed out, what I think is really important to understand here is not a denigration of Ishmael, but really trying to, the text is driving home here, and we'll continue to do so in the rest of Genesis with the focus on barren matriarchs, that God alone is the one who can fill his promises. And human attempts to do that will not go well. So that's really the context in which we need to understand why there's so much focus on Isaac as the promised son and not Ishmael. So as we see in the text, Isaac, I mean, Abraham provides for Hagar with some, some bread and some water, and he sends her on his way. Notice that it's a gentler term. Sarah wants her to be driven out. I, uh, Abraham sends her on her, her way. And then we're told that she wanders in Beersheba which is a very arid part of what is now southern Israel. The scene that we read next is so haunting. Once again, Hagar is alone and desperate in the wilderness. The last time she was pregnant, this time she has a teenage son, which is the likely age of uh, Ishmael this time. But now they are on the verge of death. And with that death would come the death of an entire nation. We can only imagine her distress how can she sit there and watch her only child, a son, her only means of being able to survive, die? And as I said, there are so many parallels here, but notice that in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord heard Hagar's cry of affliction. And here in Genesis 21, God hears Ishmael crying. In both passages, God assures Hagar of Ishmael's great status in Genesis 16, we're told that his offspring will be so numerous they can't be counted. In Genesis 21, we're told that Ishmael will be a great nation. I can't really trace this out in terms of modern politics because it gets pretty complicated. Arabs traced their ancestry to Ishmael, and Muslims came that Muhammad descended from Ishmael. This modern rivalry is actually not rooted in the biblical text, so I'm going to sidestep it, but I felt like I needed to say at least something about it. Now, notice also that there's been a real emphasis on seeing. In Genesis 16, Hagar calls the God who sees me. And in Genesis 21, God allows Hagar to see his provision, which was not a, a, a apparent to her at the beginning. 
Once again, she's going to prefigure the Israelites who flee from Egypt into the wilderness where God provides water for them and sees them. Russell told that Hagar is now referred to as his mother, not as a slave, and that she gets a wife for him from Egypt. Now, normally women did not do this. So once again, we see she's no longer a slave and she's acting in her own agency. This is just a really quick overview of, of Hagar, but I hope you've come to realize she's a pretty remarkable individual. She shows tremendous faith and courage and is not um, kind of taken down by her circumstances, but actually is used very significantly by the Lord. What is so interesting to me is the very powerful ways that God uses Hagar to indicate how he is also going to act with the Israelites later on. So as a way of concluding, what I'd like to do is to leave us with four encouragements. A couple of them are encouragement challenges um, that come out of this. And it's really not about Hagar. She's remarkable. But it's through Hagar we get these encouragements about the nature of God. And that's what I want to conclude with. First of all, it's very clear in this passage that God is the God who hears. He hears the cries of the enslaved. This case is an enslaved woman fleeing mistreatment. He hears the cry of a teenage boy dying of thirst in the wilderness. He hears the cries of the affliction of the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt. He hears the cries of the marginalized and the enslaved throughout history and still to this day. He hears our own cries in our various distresses. He is the God who hears, and specifically, he hears the cry of the afflicted. This is a great encouragement. Secondly, this pas these two passages reveal that he is the God who sees. He sees an Egyptian slave in the wilderness. Whereas others see her as an object, or as a threat, God sees her as she really is and calls her by her name. He sees Ishmael. He sees the marginalized. He sees the oppressed. They are not nameless to him. He sees them as they truly are. This is an encouragement, but I think this is also a challenge. At least this passage has really, really challenged me. Do I see the marginalized? Do I see the homeless? Do I see the people who are easy to overlook? A third great encouragement that comes out of this passage, these two passages, is that God is presented as the one who provides in the wilderness. He provided water to Hagar and to Ishmael. He provided water to the Israelites in the wilderness. And so often we see this picture of God providing for his people in the wilderness. But this clearly extends beyond a physical wilderness to a metaphorical wilderness. The wildernesses in our lives, the empty places, the dry spaces, the isolated places. He is the God who provides spiritual water in these wilderness spaces. He's also the God who provides physically as well. Finally, these passages show us that he is the God who blesses. Even if the choice to have a son by Hagar wasn't God's way of obtaining his promises, God still blesses those who bore the brunt of this decision. 
He blessed Hagar and he blessed Ishmael in unexpected ways. And God still blesses situations that are less than ideal in unexpected ways. So I want to just leave us with this. Four things. Our God hears, our God sees, our God provides, our God blesses. Whether we're looking outward at a world that is in desperate need of help, this is true, or whether we're looking inward at our own need, this is true. The God we worship is the God who hears, who sees, who provides, and blesses. Amen.